Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want What Fuels You to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Omri Gazit. Omri is the co-founder and CEO of Asserto, an authorization startup and his third entrepreneurial venture. He spent the majority of his 30-year career working on developer and infrastructure technology, most recently as the CPO of Puppet. Previously, he was the VP and GM of HP's cloud native platform and general manager at Microsoft with responsibilities for Azure, SQL Server, Application Server, and the .NET framework. Welcome, Omri. Great to see you. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. It's an honor to be here with you. Oh, thanks. Okay, I'm going to hit you with the rapid fire, starting with, you're such an incredibly accomplished um, executive, but your your engineering background is pretty insane. So I'm curious what, this is just a hack for me, what's a great um, question to ask an engineer in an interview to vet them? I would say, uh, what's your favorite programming language and why? Yeah. And is the why to, uh, I guess, assess their curiosity level or kind of how, how much they love to kind of tinker with different things? Yeah, I think, um, you know, people have their, basically their uh, proclivities around programming languages. And it's always interesting to hear like the deeper one gets in terms of, you know, describing why they like something, you know, the more, um, the more depth you, you know, you can get out of uh, that particular answer, right? So yeah. um, engineers that are like, yeah, I programmed in Java once upon a time. And, you know, it, it's like the, the, fa- the, the developer business, like is such a fashion business. Um, every five or 10 years, there's kind of like new things. And right. in some areas of uh, engineering, like front end engineering, it seems like every three to six months, you have a new framework. Right. So, and that's what, that's what it does seem like. And I don't even do engineering recruiting, but I hear my team on the floor talking about it. And I'm like, wait, six months ago, I wasn't hearing that word. And now I'm hearing it all the time. So super curious. That's, that's helpful. Um, is there any sort of movie that you somehow seem to watch on repeat that you love? Yeah, I, I, my family would say that I've probably watched The Matrix more time than I care to admit. Um, you know, that answer is uh, probably was a good answer 10 years ago. I found myself going back to the Shawshank Redemption. Oh, that's so funny. Anyone asks me my favorite movie, I always say Shawshank Redemption, but it's not one that I necessarily want to watch all the time. I have to be in like the headspace for it, but it's so well done and so well acted. Exactly. Everything about it. That. And 
you know, I had zero expectations. The title, you know, I think really tanked the movie in terms of its ability to succeed in the, in the, you know, in the box office. But right. I think there are very few movies that, that stand the test of time the way that, that, that one does. I agree. Um, okay. Since you are from Israel, I'm curious, what's your favorite beach in Israel, favorite area to visit? Um, Herzliya Beach and Tel Aviv Beach are really nice. Uh, my sister lives in Haifa, so whenever we go to visit, uh, we'll definitely uh, stop by there. Uh, but and Eilat, you know, in the south is also wonderful. Completely different feel. Very hot um, by the the Red Sea, uh, but yeah, definitely a set of that. We definitely get to the beach when we go to Israel. Yeah, it's funny because I've been there maybe three times only, but mostly Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and then in the north. But I've not done the whole like, let me just go explore the, the beaches of Israel and everybody talks about them. I've obviously been to Tel Aviv, but never a lot, which is sad and it's on my list. Um, okay, given that you've got, you have three kids, right? Mm -hmm. So what would your kids, I guess what words, what three words would your kids use to describe you? Um. I would say quirky, <laughs> uh, intense, um, and supportive, hopefully. <laughs> At least yeah. that one's the aspirational one, right? Yeah, okay, we got the aspirational. That's so funny because when we first uh, got on, I started to tell you that I was listening to this like parent, but parenting book, which I never do. And I was like, uh-oh, uh-oh, I'm not doing any of these things. And I thought I was kind of on track. They're pretty good kids, but you know what I mean? It's like the hardest job. So aspirationally supportive is good. Um, what's your favorite place to ski? Ooh, that's an excellent one. Um, it would have to be between Whistler and Park City. And the common denominator is that both have great villages and lots of terrain. Um, Whistler is, of course, very close. I've been there, um, you know, almost every year, I would say, uh, almost every winter. But the snow quality is, you know, can be good or bad. And uh, in Park City, it's almost always good. Yeah, you have to be a really good skier in Whistler, the best. Mm -hmm. um, what's your favorite sport or the best sport that you like to watch? And then within that, who's your favorite player? Wow, let's see. So when I grew up in Israel, it was uh, soccer and basketball, uh, or football, as we like to call it. And when I moved to the U.S., I really didn't get baseball, maybe still don't. Like, I didn't get football, and now I would say it's probably my favorite sport to watch. Um, I still like to watch basketball, but only playoff basketball because 82 games in a season is a little much. Um, but um, the football... At first, I just didn't really, you know, kind of, I didn't understand all the nuances and I found it to be a very strategic game. And in fact, talking to football players or ex-football players, it, it's just fascinating to understand, to see how much strategy there is. Yeah. Um, you know, it just seems very, you know, kind of pedestrian when like you first watch it. And then when you start really getting deep into it, it's, it's just amazing how, how layered it is. Yeah, you can always tell the people that understand the layers when you're watching it with them. And I'm just like, oh, yay, touchdown. <laughs> Those are the basic pedestrian views from where I sit. But yeah, definitely super layered. Um, so, sorry, are you a Seahawks fan? 
I am a Seahawks fan, and you asked uh, who my favorite player is, and you know, so Russell Wilson certainly uh, was uh, right up there, and I found him to be just you know kind of the combination of the human and uh, the player, and how he's evolved uh, to be really fascinating too, because he used to uh, you know he played differently earlier in his career than he does now. Yeah, uh, I'm really really sad to see him go. I know it is sad. Well, I also feel like I mean maybe it's just with Sierra. And her influence, I don't really know, but it seems like he's also a pretty good businessman. And he's definitely yeah. uh, taking advantage of his fame right now as far as visibility and getting involved with so many different things. So, so yeah. Okay. So are you an introvert or an extrovert? I think I'm more of an extrovert. Um, I grew up uh, kind of a little bit awkward and shy, but I've always derived a lot of energy from interacting with people. And mm-hmm. I find that, you know, everybody has their kind of the level of fatigue that they get to when they have to be on all the time. But, you know, I really do love interacting with people. And especially uh, when I get, get together with friends, I get just so much energy from that. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so is there a CEO who you most admire or who you follow closely? Um, let's see, I really did admire and still do uh, Bill Gates. I found him to be uh, just brilliant and also, you know, human, you know, and, and, you know, having some, you know, some, some inhibitors as well in his life. And I think um, folks like that, that are able to kind of overcome uh, some of the, you know, some of the, you know, the things that are are more difficult for them personality wise always. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, he's, you know, not universally, but, you know, greatly admired. And I think 20 years ago, that wasn't true. You know, 20 years ago, he was considered basically kind of like the blood sucking vampire of the software industry. And I think um, the work that he's done over the last 15 or 20 years has been uh, really remarkable. And, you know, he's really created a, a second career for himself and focused on making the world a better place. So yeah. I have a lot of admiration for that. Yeah, the giving back part is definitely admirable. So I'm super curious, and we're going to get there on how you even ended up in Seattle, but tell me about your upbringing and the layered history kind of of your childhood. Yeah, so um, I grew up in Israel. I was born there. And uh, the reason why I don't sound like an Israeli, even though I can I can do a pretty mean Israeli accent, is that early on in life, uh, when I was four, uh, my, um, my dad did his postdoc um in uh new york and so we lived in new jersey in fort lee for three years and i got you know i i learned english obviously as uh in in that formative phase so i can speak english uh the way uh you know an american would because the accent you get and you never uh forget but uh then you know we moved again Uh, we moved back to israel and then we moved back uh to the united states when i was in high school and that was harder because even though i had kind of like uh the accent was good. I had almost no vocabulary and I would, you know, every once in a while intersperse some Hebrew words with my English because uh, it just, you, for whatever reason, the region of the brain that's associated with language uh, made me do it. And yeah. so it was, it took a few months for me to actually gain enough confidence to be able to, um, you know, kind of. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and kids, and kids are, life. kids are brutal. I'm going to make you do this next couple sentences with your Israeli accent because I I miss it. I want to go. I think I'm going to go this fall, um, but I absolutely love it. So, um, okay. So tell me, like, how would you describe your childhood? Where where specifically 
were you living in Israel? In my Israeli accent, you say? Yes. <laughs> well, yes. I grew up in Jerusalem. Can, can. <laughs> <laughs> Jerusalem uh, was a, a, a fun city to grow up in. And, uh, okay, I'm going to stop now. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, you know, I would say that uh, it was kind of a tough neighborhood where I grew up. Going back and visiting uh, with my family, um, you know, with my, uh, my wife and kids was interesting because I'm like, wow, I kind of grew up in the projects in Jerusalem. It's um, didn't really kind of think of it at that time that way, but it's a tough neighborhood. And, um, you know, I, uh, I, you know, I would say that like coming from the United States and being kind of a smart and quirky kid was, was hard. Mm-hmm. So I uh, got picked on a lot and I had to learn a little bit how to stand up for myself. And yeah. So you're, you're, do you have a lot of siblings? I have a sister and a brother, both younger. Both younger. And so when you say the projects, um, how is it laid out there? Is it like by neighborhood? I mean, I've gone there obviously as an American visiting and here hitting all the spots, but never of, of course lived in Jerusalem. So like what what was the home situation like and what was the neighborhood like as far as um was there diversity of different religious um i guess levels yeah so israel is an interesting place uh when i grew up you know originally i would say it was majority of the majority of jews that lived in israel uh came from europe and eastern europe and you know in 1948, there was an influx of uh, Jews that came from uh, Africa and from the Middle East, Mizrahi uh, um, Jews. And my mom, my mom is an Ashkenazi Jew. My dad is uh, was born in Morocco, was born in Africa, and they were, uh, I guess, you know, considered a you know a mixed marriage in Israel at the time. So, um, you know, I guess we call it biracial here. And there was definitely kind of a tension between uh, you know around that um mm-hmm. i think it's the closest thing that uh you know israel has to to you know kind of a, a racial tension mm-hmm. and at the time i would say that um the political uh, system was shifting it was uh the majority of israelis were becoming uh you know mizrahim uh and they basically elected Uh, were key to electing uh, new governments. And so there was this basically this uh, this change uh, going on in Israel. And I was kind of neither here nor there. Like when it's almost like, you know, you're not quite this enough and you're not quite that enough. And I recall that being, uh, it wasn't a huge part of my childhood, but there was definitely some element of that because, you know, there was a little bit of, of that associated with, uh, you know, kind of, um with uh with how i perceived uh you know i was uh you, you know like how how i needed to survive how i needed to yeah. think about interacting with others it's so interesting because after doing so many of these podcasts and listening to people and several as you know that i've known others that i've gotten to know a little bit and then people that i'm just getting to know there's such a thread of um just stories of discrimination and hate that mm. just make me crazy because there's no real reason for it. Yeah. And in fact, I, I, I think that's exactly right. So um, growing up in Israel, I had a little bit of that, you know, kind of in, so I have a model for what that looks like in my head. And then moving to the United States uh, again at uh, 15 or 16, again, high school, awkward 
age and awkward uh, transitions. And, you know, a lot of people really nice. And then at the same time, I encountered like real anti-Semitism, like kids in my German class that were like basically writing swastikas on the board and on their forehead, all to, you know, just basically you know, make my my life miserable, so to speak. What are you talking about? Wait, this yeah. is in New Jersey? No, this was in uh, Nashville, Nashville. Oh, then you went to Nashville. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Well, I missed that part because I'm like, New Jersey. So was there, I guess, other Jewish kids in your class? And what did the teachers do? Like, oh Yeah, my- the teacher was horrified. Teacher um, was, you know, uh, you know, it was a German um, and had a PhD in, you know, in, in teaching. And she basically was like, this is a part of our history that we wish never happened. And she was trying to explain how terrible that was to the kids. And, you know, Jewish kids that were at the school heard about this somehow and came up to me and they were like, you know, who do we need to beat up? And I'm like, no, you don't need to beat anybody up. This is kind of my thing. But I I got this view. I was like, wow, this is what anti-Semitism is. It's like wow. I grew up in a Jewish majority, you know, country, and now I'm feeling what it's like to, you know, kind of be on the other side of that. And yeah. you know, there's a lot of soul searching that kind of went into that, uh, that period where I was trying to figure out like, you know, how to overcome the the feeling of of anger that I had. Right. And, and ultimately kind of right. realized that you don't you don't want to fight that kind of hate with just, you know, the opposite kind of hate. Right. Like it doesn't get you anywhere to hate with hate. A lot of times it's just ignorance, even though that's not a hall pass. It's just people haven't had exposure and they don't know. And there's it's all fear-based. But I do think it's um it's fascinating to hear these stories. And then you usually hear, I'd just be curious to know where those people are now, you know, like what happened to them? That can't be a good life to live like that. Um, So I'm guessing you were probably pretty good in school. And um, did that give you kind of a different level of confidence or were you trying to kind of downplay your smarts? Uh, It depended on the, the, you know, kind of the situation and, in, I did, I was part of, uh, you know, kind of schools that had these special programs uh, and were selective uh, high schools. And so there, you know, it was, there's no problem in, you know, kind of in being smart and, and being able to um, have some confidence in that. I also, uh, I also quickly found out, you know, in my heart of hearts, I realized I wasn't the smartest. And so trying to find an identity was kind of difficult. Um, one of the things I learned about myself is that moving a lot was was difficult, uh, but it also created some you know level of resilience and also adaptability. And I think if there's something that I keep on coming back to uh, that I think overall was hard at the time, but I think was a, a great life lesson to learn was how to land in new situations and take them in and, and adapt so that you can uh, become successful in those situations. And so yeah. That, that that moving a lot, I think, helped quite a bit there. Yeah, and what were you kind of passionate about or interested in? I'm glad nobody asks me this because I'm like, uh, like in high school, I'm like, oh, we were just trying to survive. But were you, I guess, into music, into sports, into partying, like into science? What were you kind of psyched about outside of school? I think the biggest things for me were uh, exactly those things. So music, um, sports, I wasn't really all that good at. And, um, you know, I as a kid, you're, you you know, you try different things, play basketball, play tennis, but was never good enough to actually, uh, you know, do those things seriously at a, you know, kind of a, 
uh, a high school level, uh, a varsity level, but um, I was really into science and I thought that all I wanted to be is a physicist. I wanted to invent the work drive. That's what I wanted to do, right? And it was uh, it was kind of a nice fantasy. And over time, I realized as I got through high school and then through college that that was, you know, um, at best, I could graduate with a physics degree, even though that was going to be really hard. But I, at best, I was going to be a mediocre physicist. Yeah. And so kind of coming to terms with the fact that, no, I wasn't quite smart enough. If there was one Nobel laureate from Rice University, you know, like in uh, you know, class of 1992, it certainly wouldn't be me. <laughs> That's so uh, funny. Who was guiding you through that whole uh, application process through college? I mean, now with the helicopter parenting and the hiring of the tutors and the educators, did you have a roadmap for that? Because your parents were from Israel. And how did that kind of ultimately land you at Rice? Yeah, so I, um, I was going to go back to, uh, to Israel to serve in the military. You know, I, there was a there's some weird situation where I was able to graduate from high school one year early. And it's kind of a funny story. I'll give the 30 second version of it. Um, the, I was a Tex in Texas at the time and the Texas principal basically said, I won't accept uh, any of the uh, credits that you had in Israel unless it says that there are credits. And I had, the system was different. We had 13 subjects, not six credits. So I basically, my dad had a trip to Israel and I printed out uh, uh, some letter on a dot matrix printer that I had that he basically had the principal sign. And all of a sudden I had twice the number of credits from Israel. Oh, but, nice. You know, instead of zero, I had 13. <laughs> yeah, not, not just resilient and adaptable, but also resourceful and driven. I like Crafty, it. exactly. Crafty. So I said, oh, really? You know, you're going to make me, you know, yeah. no, I'm going to gain a year instead. So I graduated early. And at that point, it looked like I could just do a year of college and then go back to Israel and serve the military. That was very important to me. And a year became two years and two years became three years. But, you know, you asked about how I um, how I ended up going and where I selected um, my my parents thought, um, hey, you know, apply everywhere. And, you know, we don't make tons of money. And so if uh, you get in, you'll you know, you'll likely get a scholarship and all will be good. I applied in a lot of different places, uh, you know, kind of top tier schools like the Stanford's and the Berkeley's and the MIT's and got into almost none of them. I think I did get into Caltech, which I was very happy about, but all of them were just outside of the budget. And yeah, uh, my dad was uh, teaching at University of Cincinnati or doing research there. And so that was going to be free. Uh, and I did get into Rice, which was at the time, uh, you know, still, you know, very uh, well regarded in Texas. And I really wanted to go there, uh, but again, didn't have the money. So I wrote them a letter and I said, hey, love to come here, but I need some help. And I got a letter back from the chemistry department saying, funny, you should mention, we're actually, we were just about to contact you. We have a scholarship for you. Uh, it's a one year scholarship uh, for, uh, you know, like for full tuition. And so I felt like the kind of the, the stars had lined up. <laughs> oh, and yeah. So I was really happy. The, the chemistry. So, but you ended up studying computer science, not chemistry. I did. So, yeah, I kind of did a little bit of a, <laughs> a little, sw little switcheroo, a little bait and switch. Yeah. They weren't super happy about it. And in fact, it was a one year scholarship. And so by the end of that year, I had to go back and figure out what it was going to do. So, 
Um, I had two choices. I could transfer to University of Florida where my dad was again faculty and that was gonna be free. And that was kind of plan A, but plan B was gonna figure out whether I could make enough money that summer to afford uh, paying for the second year. And, you know, I honestly, obviously I knew that that was uh, in the card. So I started working uh, pretty soon after I, um, I got to Rice. And so that kind of work study um, uh, program like that, that I undertook really kind of made it possible for me to do two things. One is pay for the next year and then the next year. Uh, and then the other thing was really kind of gain a lot of self-confidence and, and independence, which was uh, really important for me and my personality at the time. So. Yeah. What were you doing to make money? Um, At first, I worked uh, as just doing tech support for in the computer um, lab. Uh, So supporting PCs and Macs. And then as I gained a little bit more skill and confidence programming, I started doing uh, some of those things. So I did a contract programming job for the University of Texas uh, microbiology uh, grad school uh, department. And that was uh, that was a huge learning experience. I set out to build something that was just too sophisticated for what I was able to pull off at the time, and I failed. And um, it was just super difficult to, you know, go back to those folks and say, hey, I tried to go build this natural language processing thing uh, for you, and it didn't work. Um, And uh, what do you want to (laughs) do? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. But what an incredible experience to get that type of you know, again, just like resilience, adaptability, grit, resourcefulness, like you're learning all that on the job and making money and, you know, paying for school and keeping you at Rice. So um, tell me about like exiting from Rice, because a lot of people, they get recruited by, you know, the the standard kind of investment banking or management consulting in certain uh, colleges. And then when you're an engineer, you're a computer science major, who's coming to campus and how do you even uh, navigate that whole process? Yeah, so I basically, I was uh, really good friends with the uh, Career Services Center folks. That's smart. If my kids are listening, that's smart. <laughs> and I basically, every company that would come in and uh, interview interns, you know, I would basically sign up. And the first summer, I probably applied to 30 places and got zero of the internships. Uh, but I did manage to get a summer job uh, at Rice. And then the second summer, um, trying to remember, I think I, oh yeah, I also stayed at Rice, but I had a much better paying job at that point. Nice. By the third summer, I uh, that I was actually graduating because uh, again, you have this trade-off, right? I want to be a physics major. I could get a computer science degree in three years. I'm paying for all of this. Um, so I will, let me go graduate with a computer science degree and then go back to grad school in physics, which was still kind of a dream. Um, and I was also gonna go back to Israel to serve the military. So as you can see, I was super confused as a 20 year old. You sound like Uh, most humans. Yeah, I was very confused as a 20 year old. And so those were the choices. Go back to Israel to serve in the military, uh, like a good Israeli, uh, because that's what you did. Um, or go to grad school, which was, uh, you know, kind of interesting and appealing and, you know, either one of those paths allowed me to take a summer job. Um, mm. And this time I actually worked at Texaco and I worked at um, Nortel uh, because the Texaco internship ended up being not, not, not what I thought it was going to be. And yeah. so make a long story short, a third opportunity came up, which was there was a um, 
a founder. Uh, I guess we didn't even call him that at the time, but he was starting a new software company. And I met him somehow, like while working at Texaco. And he, at the end of that summer, he basically said, hey, I'm starting this company. Would you like to join me? Today, we call that a founding engineer. And I wasn't really sure, but it sounded like a good amount of money. And at the time, I was pretty insecure with respect to, to, to money. And I remember talking to my dad. And he's like, oh, you don't listen to anything I say. But, you know, if you like, you'll probably do the opposite. But here's my advice. No one's ever going to give you any awards for going back to Israel at 20 years old and serving. You know, they'll just kind of they'll pick on you again. <laughs> uh, instead, why don't you do this? Work for a year, make some money, and then go back to Israel or don't. But, you know, you'll actually go back with a lot more to, you know, a lot more options. And I kind of thought about it. I was like, yeah, maybe he's right. Maybe I should put all this other stuff to the side. Um, you know, go make a little bit of money, you know, go work for a year and then see, see what happens after that. And so it was, you know, it wasn't really a set of, like, the set of choices I had weren't like go to work in management consulting or go to work for a right. software company. Yeah, of or course. It was like a completely exotic set of choices. Yeah, it was like apples to oranges. But I am hearing like, before you started talking about like I had an opportunity to make money, I was actually thinking, I don't think he was so money motivated at the time because it doesn't sound like you were looking at your opportunities through that lens. And I'm curious if you've ever looked at things through that lens because just in in reviewing your background, you've got large companies, smaller companies, startup founder, you know, you've kind of done it all. And I'm curious um, how you've made decisions about your career choices throughout time. Because there are yeah. lens that you look at now. Yeah, and I think it's definitely evolved and changed over time. So early on, that was exactly right. I valued my freedom more than anything else. So yeah, well, during COVID now people, that's actually the big transition after 30 years in recruiting. I'm like, ah, uh, people are like, yeah, you can have your 400,000. I just want to be able to like work close to home or not go in. <laughs> For me, it was just, uh, I wanted to, to feel like I was in control of my own life. And so money definitely wasn't the most important, um, uh, you know, uh, most important thing or the be all end all. But I also realized that money does buy you some freedom. And so I started understanding some of that trade off. And I remember talking to uh, one of my professors at Rice, and he wrote me a really nice recommendation letter for grad school. I did actually apply to grad school, I did get into grad schools, and I was gonna go there. Um, and he said, Huh, you know, he was actually joking with some guy who came from the National Science Foundation, you know, and he was kind of schmoozing the NSF person, you know, he was trying to get a grant and he said, hey, look at this guy, you know, he wants to go back to grad school, you know, to like work for, you know, hunger wages, so to speak, and, you know, go eat really bad food, um, just so that he can you know, get what, a PhD in computer science? Uh, you know, that's kind of funny. Like they were, you know, they were kind of, you know, laughing like, a little yeah, bit about it. Of course. Um, but he was doing it in a very kind way, right? He was basically telling me, just be, be, you know, kind of be deliberate in terms of what you're trying to do. Don't get a PhD just because your dad has a PhD. And that was what you always thought was going to be right. in your future. Don't go through, they're just like checking the box, like actually be passionate and connected and yeah, mindful of what, and really so I would say, yeah, I mean, education and achievement were super important uh, as, as part of my, my upbringing. And those values were still instilled very strongly in me, you know, both, you know, directly and indirectly. And so kind of stepping away from that was really difficult because 
Um, I, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of value that was placed in academic achievement, um, in, in our family. And so, um, walking away from that was difficult. Um, but at the same time, I felt like there were interesting opportunities and there was a lot of reason why I ended up taking a job at that startup was it just felt like an amazing place to learn. Um, and so was it, it was, it was unbelievable. It was uh, six years that I spent there and. Uh, the company went public, uh, uh, you know, shortly after I left. Yeah. Did you get founders? Did you get founder shares? You know, the funny thing was I, uh, I asked for 401k and my, uh, you know, my, the founder kind of laughed me out of the room. And then I asked about insurance, medical insurance. He's like, right. You're like yeah. 22. Yeah. He's like, we don't have any, but you're right. We should probably get that. Um, so, you know, it was kind of, I didn't know what to ask for. And at some point I did ask about equity and he said, well, when the company's worth something, we'll talk about equity, which was, it's exactly the wrong time <laughs> to talk about something. Yeah, exactly. That ship and, has sailed. Right. And, you know, at the same time, he was like a really interesting guy, super smart and a great mentor to me. And at some point he realized, you know, I probably negotiated too hard of a deal with this kid and he tried to get me, uh, you know, more equity, which he did. And at that point we had investors and it was a little bit hard. And ultimately the reason why I left neon was I I just couldn't get over uh, first. It was like, I I was learning less and less, you know, the company was about to go public and I felt like I'd learned everything there there was to learn there, but there was also this feeling of not being treated fairly. And you know, being the first person in and having uh, arguably built just as much, if not more than anybody else had built as an engineer over there. And at the same time, kind of being treated uh, like a kid and, and not, you know, gaining the same, the same upside. As yeah. Ever. Well, you grew up there. So it's a little bit hard to change that dynamic. Like they still see me as a kid, but now I'm like a full blown bigger kid. No, I'm kidding. But like, you know, I'm an adult now and I've, I've been in the real world contributing to this company significantly. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, and- so you left there and and tell me about kind of your choices along the way before starting a Certo. Yeah, so I got a call from Microsoft and um, I wasn't really all that serious about it at first. I thought free trip to the Northwest with, uh, with my wife and um, we were just about to have our first child. This was 1998. And so, you know, it was kind of, one of those here goes nothing kind of kinds of things. But when I talked to um, the engineers at Microsoft, I was just floored by how good they were. Um, I ended up talking like in retrospect, I talked to people who were uh, became went on to become technical fellows. So I was extremely lucky in the interview loop I had. But you know, I would basically I, I ran through a, a problem that was vexing me. You know, back at my startup and. Um, you know, the engineer that I was talking to, Chris Broom, um, he basically helped me solve the problem in 45 minutes on a whiteboard kind of thing, right? And I'm like, what? This guy, there's just so much to learn from these people. Like, it was almost like the scales were lifted from my eyes. I thought I was a pretty dang good engineer. And now I realize, oh, there's, there's, there's a ways to go here. And so um, that, was, that was a really big motivator um, to come to Microsoft, which at the time in 1998 was the best software company in the world, um, you know, maybe the number one, two, and three best software companies in the world. Um, and I was kind of, I came from the other end of town. I came from the Unix world, you know, and the world which didn't really take Microsoft all that seriously as a company. So that took a little bit of a kind of an adjustment uh, to 
realized that, you know, no, these people actually really were good, good at what they did. And I could learn a lot there. Yeah. And what was your experience of two things? One, what was it like coming to Seattle? Did you experience kind of the Seattle freeze that talk, people talk about? And two, how would you describe the culture at Microsoft? So um, moving here, we were, we, like I said, we had our first kid and we were fortunate to be able to meet other um uh, other uh, young families in our situation yeah. that were more or less, you know, I would say within five years of our, we were young parents. Uh, we had our first child uh, at um, 26 years old. And so some of the parents that had infants around the same age were a little bit older, but I was always comfortable with that. And so we, we did actually manage to uh, create some friendships, uh, which was great, but it is very, very different from Texas. You know, in, te in Texas, the default, you know, kind of mode of meeting somebody is a smile and a handshake and a, um, and in Seattle, it's not that, that way. Yeah. So. And, and in Texas, you know, I've not lived there, but I've heard, you know, that that whole Southern hospitality, like inviting people over mm -hmm. where people talk about Seattle and they say that they're like, Oh, we should totally do something. And then just never follow through. Yeah. So that's what I've, that's how the Seattle freeze has been described to me. Yeah. And I definitely, we definitely felt that we had to work at it. And so yeah. we did uh, join a synagogue um, and in due time, like when our kids went to uh, preschool with uh, Jewish preschool with other kids, we 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 basically made uh, relationships, reform relationships yeah. that way. So you we really had only people. two. Yeah, I mean through Microsoft and then through uh, through the, yeah. the 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 preschool. And so Microsoft's culture at the time would be described how? So I joined, and um, we were just starting this project that later became .NET. So I was one of the first maybe dozen people uh, to work on, on this thing. And I, was, uh, I helped start a, a part of .NET called ADO.NET. And we were, you know, almost immediately, I realized that, like, our team was kind of at war with another team. And I, it was kind of hard to get my head around it. But like I said, adaptability, you quickly realize uh, part of your job is not just building products, but it's also the politics around uh, building things and uh, figuring out who to, you know, who are the influencers? Who do you have to win over? Like, who are the power brokers? And, you know, there was just this crash course and like, I can't call it anything else in just the palace politics that was Microsoft. And on the one hand, most amazing set of people, like just the talent density is incredible. On the other hand, as Bill, you know, liked to say, uh, he used to say half my job is trying to get the IQs to add up as opposed to cancel out. And there was absolutely that dynamic, um, the dynamic of, uh, you know, different teams pulling in different directions and, uh, you know, not really making progress and not really being aligned and focused on uh, building things that deliver customer value. Yeah, I've heard that. And I've also heard there's the whole like politics of learning how to manage up and people taking credit and people hoarding information and just, I've never worked in a huge company like that. I don't think I would love it. Um, but the, but your kind of net net uh, of that experience is that it was a positive one. Yeah, I learned so much at Microsoft. I, I really, you know, the, just like anything, there's obviously plus and minus in, in, in every situation, but um, I learned a ton there. And 
the first year or year and a half were really difficult because I ended up, the team I ended up joining was um, just not well thought of and oh, uh, interesting. had a hard time kind of finding its way. Yeah. And we had, uh, you know, we had projects that were canceled and we had wars and, and all sorts of things like that, which were just like everything and anything other than actually building stuff. Yeah. And then the, the last you know, kind of like the, the, the first 18 months, I had a two year horizon. I basically said, if I, if I'm not making it in two years, I just, I need to just, you know, kind of go back to startup land. Uh, right. Because big companies are not for me. And a year and a half in, I was actually invited to start to, to join a startup of uh, my, my manager and his manager were uh, leaving Microsoft, creating a startup. This was back in kind of like maybe late 99, early 2000, maybe early 2000. So just before the, big dot-com bust and startups were all the rage at the time. And I was very tempted to do it, but something kept me in my seat, which was, I haven't really seen this through yet. Let me, let me spend the next six months just kind of figuring out whether I can make this work. And that was the time where everything kind of came together around .NET. All of a sudden kind of the politics fell away as we were trying to deliver our first preview to, uh, you know, at this big conference called uh, the Professional Developers Conference. And you started seeing what this company could do if it actually set its mind to doing it. And it was one of the, the, the best professional experiences I ever had was going from 1998, nothing to, you know, 2002, uh, shipping this new thing called .NET that really changed the trajectory of Microsoft in the developer community. It was definitely, yeah. you know, waning at the time. And I think .NET gave us uh, really a new lease on, on life and a new fresh framework to be able to approach uh, developers with. Yeah, and how long did you end up staying total at Microsoft? Uh, I was there 13 years. So, you know, I would divide it into, you know, there was a, a period of time where I almost left Microsoft in 2004 to join a pre-IPO Google. And my- Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, my my, some friends had gone over there and said, this is just a engineer's heaven. By that time, I was more of a, you know, of a, of a manager, a product unit manager, a general manager. And so it was a little bit hard for me to kind of see making that transition. Um, and at the time, Google was starting a Kirkland office uh, and there were two people and I was going to be the third. And they said, hey, why don't you become the site lead here? And I said, oh, the site lead of three. That's awesome. Um, and of course, you know, famous last words, uh, I just... I had the Microsoft pattern in, in my head and yeah. I just felt like you could never really do anything significant outside of Redmond if you were working at Microsoft. And Interesting. Google, as it turned out, like they actually were pretty good at creating these distributed labs. Um, and so oh, yeah. no, the lab at Kirkland and Seattle, there are now thousands of people. So. Oh, for sure. Yeah, there are thousands of people. Do you have any regrets around those decisions? I guess of A, not going with your original boss to the startup. I'm curious what happened there. And then be the kind of Google opportunity. I would say no real regrets uh, because it all kind of you know develops and happens for a reason. I think uh, the startup. I had this this flash of like how bad it could be. You know, with a conversation that I had with a founder just the uh, the day before I, I had to make a decision. So you know, the there 
there's a, a you know kind of like a a founder and then a co-founder the co-founder was my boss the founder was my boss's boss and i just had this conversation that i realized you know it, it's it, this is not going to be as fun as i think it is um, yeah and you have to be passionate and you have to feel that fun because you're putting in god only knows how many hours exactly for many years so it's like i i got to go all in and believe in my heart of hearts that this is it or i got to be out Exactly, exactly. So overall, you know, that one, I think was a good decision. And then the Google decision, you know, you always kind of look back and go, you know, financially probably would have uh, worked out very nicely. But I still didn't, I had work to do at Microsoft, and I still hadn't gotten to, you know, achieve the things I wanted to achieve. Yeah. Um, You know, I think 13 years in retrospect was probably a little too long. And I like to say that when I first joined Microsoft, I was, you know, fiercely independent, and I had, you know, this entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. And, you know, towards the end of my tenure there, I started coming to terms with the fact that I'd been institutionalized. And 100%, I started, yeah. I, I really started valuing what Microsoft valued. I started buying into the, like the value system there. And it scared me a little bit. You know, I yeah. kind of asked myself, is this the place I want to die? Yeah. And I came to the conclusion that no, I, you know, it probably helped that I was turning 40. I was, yeah, you got another run in you or two or three. Exactly. And, you know, there's, there's more to do than just uh, be a functionary at Microsoft, even if I was on a CDP path, which I was. Um, So what was your first move when you realized at age 40, like this isn't where I want to die? Yeah, I think I needed a kick in the butt. Also, Um, I was at in Xbox at the time and I, there's a, an interesting story here on how I got there. I was basically working on uh, server and tools and, you know, really the developer division and the cloud stuff and um, helped start, you know, one of the a couple of the projects uh, that later became Azure projects. And um, I had this team that was just pound for pound, you know, you know, some of the most tenured senior people at the company. And we basically built something that we were really passionate about. And um, I, you know, I was, uh, I was very passionate about what we were building. It lost executive support and um, my, uh, you know, my management chain uh, was, uh, um, you know, the, the president of STP, Bob Muglia, uh, and the person I was working uh, for basically thought that we should uh, go shoot it. We should kill it. And I fell on the sword on that one. Um, it was one of those things where um, I really felt passionately about it. I went to Steve and I um, asked Steve for a stay of execution, so to speak, argued, you know, it, you know, like pretty eloquently, but ultimately said, look, I'm, I can't get in the way of this. And I felt like I had one more hurrah on me at Microsoft after that, uh, went to Xbox and it just didn't work out. Like I, six months in, um, you know, I, Early on, I was convinced, uh, you know, by the the person who hired me in that, you know, this was a good next step for me and that the fact that I wasn't really a gamer uh, wasn't really, you know, going to, you know, be a problem here. Like they needed people who understood developer platforms and had that kind of experience. And then six months in, he basically came back and said, hey, look, um, you know, the person that kind of left in a huff and a puff, you know, he kind of wants a path to come back. He wants your job and, and I'm going to give it to him. And so I was fired. <laughs> I was oh fired my God, my that's job. nuts. Well, it's nuts that they don't look at it as like a whole holistic story versus yeah. just like, 
it seems to me that it should be like, hey, this isn't the right fit for this right now based on this circumstance. But this person who's a rock star who's been dedicated to our company should go back kind of into the pool to choose and, from, from your perspective what you want to do. And, and that was, I mean, I shouldn't say, I mean, I, I it was the latter, right? He basically okay. said, hey, look, um, I'm going to give you your job away, you know, and, you know, he gave me plenty of time to try to find another one. But I think that was the kick in the butt that I needed. Yeah, right? you're like, I, this is great. This is actually the kick in the butt that right. I wouldn't Microsoft, have created for myself. It's a, Microsoft's a warm bath, right? So you're, you know, it's very comfortable. And then it kind of, for me, at least, it took something to like, kind of wake me up a little bit and go, what do I really want to do? And so I spent a little bit of time, you know, trying to figure out whether there was a job at Microsoft I wanted. And, you know, I would say that it helped that at that point, I was probably no longer on the path that I thought I was like this, you know, like super high trajectory path of getting to, you know, kind of higher and higher executive ranks. And, you know, I, was also looking at other places, but it really started to appeal to me to go, you know, kind of go to a startup. And yeah. I, I think I also, it was the year that Steve Jobs uh, passed away. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing his Stanford command. command of course, address. amazing. And, you know, what would you do if you had one when one were you to live? And it really kind of influenced me to try something new. And it's super hard to do that. I think that's the hardest thing to do. It's like when you're failing at something, it's easy to kind of toss in your cards and say, okay, I'm going to start over. I'm, I, I want a new hand. But when you're actually, you know, kind of succeeding, you know, not like hitting it out of the park, but succeeding enough to know that like, you know, things are good. That's the hardest time to actually say, okay, well, I have totally. to fail here. But, you know, this hand is still not good enough. I want to actually go aim for the full house or. Yeah. Well, and I think sometimes people can potentially use age as their default kind of excuse. Like I might've done this if I was, had a higher risk tolerance in my twenties, I might've done this in my thirties, but it's like thirties, the new, I mean, well, how do I say that? 50 is the new 30, like everything changes. And there's all sorts of candidates that I meet that are like 50 making big life changes and sometimes i think there's like that little window at microsoft where you just have to go you're gonna have to leave exactly and for me one of the things that i always uh, that made it hard to leave was who i was going to be letting down if i left mm. and so i found myself in this really interesting confluence where a you know uh, i didn't really have a, a, a role with a bunch of people reporting into me that i would let down um you know, be there wasn't an obvious next step at Microsoft or elsewhere. And so like, let's go, you know, try this entrepreneurship thing. Yeah. So tell and, me about that experience, the entrepreneurship. Like how did that start, you know, name and the whole kind of original. Yeah. So um, one of my friends and I were leaving around the same time, decided to do a company together called Built Steady. And I had spent all my time really uh, on developer platforms and, you know, basically, uh, you know, enterprise stuff. But this was a consumer idea. Um, I, we were frustrated that there was no good, you know, kind of to-do, you know, list. All the apps were just terrible. They didn't really help you. They made you feel bad about yourself. And we thought that we could do, um, you know, what today we call machine learning. You know, we could try to reason about what it is that you were doing and try to help you get it done. And it was an interesting idea. And I think there's still some room in the market for that. But, you know, we were just not, 
the team to go build a consumer thing. And it took us about a year to realize it. We did a few mm -hmm. iterations of it. Um, we tried out a few different things. There was a chicken and egg problem. You have to get users to get the data, to get the magic, you know, but you need the magic to get the users. <laughs> so it's what, what we call the cold start problem. And we tried a few, you know, a few ways of, of overcoming that. But overall, we kind of realized that we had a good run. Um, but it was time to kind of close it down. And the, um, the, the detox period for Microsoft was also really interesting. I, I know a lot of people talk about this, but you know, you really have to kind of go back and, and want to go get stuff done every day. Like you- Oh, of course, you've gotten a little spoiled. Exactly. So everything, nothing gets done unless you do it yourself. And I think you have to be really good with that, really okay with that. Like, and not feel like you're going back to doing stuff that you did 20 years right, ago. Right, like this is beneath me. I can't exactly. believe I'm age 40 doing this like crazy tasks. I used to have three assistants do this. Yeah. When you're, exactly. When you're doing a startup, you have to want to go learn things as an IC again. And yeah. if you find, you know, pleasure and satisfaction in that, then I think it's a fantastic move. And if you're looking for, you know, a shortcut, it's probably not a good move yeah. because you're kind of going back and doing right. things that, you know, maybe you knew how to do 20 years ago or 15 years or 10 years ago, but those things are no longer applicable because right. in our you know, in our industry, everything changes so fast. That so fast. That I love the fashion. I love the fashion yeah. analogy. I've never actually heard someone say that. And I also think you do have to um, kind of check your ego at the door. <laughs> really, like that's yeah. a lot what you're saying too, without saying it. It's, it's like, I can't have this, like I'm above this feeling. Exactly. And the third thing I'd say is there's some things that you do know, you know, there's some skills that transfer, but there's some things that like, I would say I, I was a general manager, you know, in charge of divisions, and I knew nothing about start go to market, nothing at all, like zero. And so kind of coming to terms with that and, and realizing that I really have to learn from, you know, from zero, like, yeah. you know, because all the patterns are going to be different. And, you know, I thought I knew something about business, but this kind of business, I know nothing about. I think it takes that, like, that's exactly right. That humility and that adaptability to really kind of understand that this is not the same, uh, <laughs> the same beast at Microsoft. Yeah. You know, we like to think that we did good work, but Microsoft was a rocket from, you know, the late eighties, you know, yeah. early nineties. that rocket was built. The go-to-market was built, you know, and <laughs> You know, the whole company could have maybe not shown up to work for a year and it would have still done more or less the same that it did. Yeah. And coming to terms with that and having the humility to realize, you know, we did some good work at Microsoft, but it probably didn't, you know, really affect the stock price once. Yeah. Time. You know, yeah. it's something that you also have to come to terms with, I think. Right, right. I want to, we could talk forever about um, the all of this, but I want to work our way into a certo and like yeah. how you and Gert, Gert's your co-founder. Mm -hmm. Yep. The good part is you met him at Microsoft. I love that. How did you guys come up with the idea and the name? Yeah, so we uh, we worked together at Microsoft, um, and he actually came. Um, I had a you know I kind of went in and out of startups in the last ten years or so. So mm -hmm. he worked with me at HP, uh, where I ended up uh, uh, being the general manager, VP of the cloud division. Um, 
and Gert was the chief architect for uh, the cloud native native application platform. And then he came, uh, he, you know, he and I both uh, ended up at Puppet. And so we kind of went our separate ways after Puppet. And then both of us, I think, were ready to do something new. And I was looking for, I want to do another startup. Um, and I, you know, was trying to ask myself what was still hard to do that was at the intersection of developers and the enterprise. And Gert was having the same thoughts and we got together and we immediately kind of gravitated towards authorization. And the, I guess the story is 10 or 15 years before, we were both looking at identity and access and what it would take to do that in the age of, of SaaS and the age of cloud. Uh, Microsoft at the time had this thing called Active Directory that was basically had 95% market share. Uh, and that was the operating system component that told you who was logged in and what they could do. And so every business application had to wire into that. And uh, so, you know, kind of like moving to the age of SaaS where uh, you don't have an operating system to ask anymore because, you know, everything is kind of on the web. Um, that identity system had to be rewritten. Um, and so at first, everybody had to kind of do it themselves. So you had companies like ServiceNow and Salesforce.com and Workday, and they all built login from scratch and they all built authorization from scratch. And the project that we were working on that became Azure Active Directory uh, was all about trying to kind of build, um, you know, build uh, identity for the web. And 15 years later, we have whole companies that have kind of been built on top of those standards like Okta and Auth0 and you know, probably $50 billion worth of market value has been created around that. But authorization didn't move forward at all. And authorization is the other aspect of it. So identity is who are you? And authorization is what can you do? And so there's no help that developer get, developers get today on that side. And so we saw this pretty big vacuum uh, we started talking to CTOs and VPs of engineering about what they do for that. And they all said, we have to build, not because we want to, because we have to, there's nothing to buy. So it just seemed like there was a really interesting problem that we knew a little bit about um, that was actually a real problem. And that was, there's no category of software around it anymore. So, or yet. So it was just kind of the perfect opportunity to, to go start. Yeah. So you said you went and talked to engineers, but um Tell me about your background versus Gertz. I know your background because we've been chatting, but like, mm -hmm. did you guys come together and say, hey, these are where we're complementary? And then um, how did you go about falling in those gaps? Yeah, so both of us kind of have an engineering, uh, you know, background or upbringing, but I definitely kind of evolved on the product management and general management side. And Gert is an engineer's engineer. He's just a phenomenal engineer, right? So, um, and a phenomenal leader. So he was most recently the chief architect at Hulu. And he's just built so many patterns over time. So, it, you know, it was very obvious that we were complementary. Yeah. I was um, more, you know, I'd spent the previous five years kind of building relationships with the venture community, um, knowing, you know, how important that was for when I, uh, you know, decided to get back into entrepreneurship again. Uh, built a lot of muscle around uh, product and uh, started building a little bit of, you know, kind of patterns around uh, early stage, you know, early stage marketing, early stage sales. And Gert, um, you know, he's he's the perfect uh, CTO and chief architect for 
for something like this that involves yeah. both building a, a cloud service as well as building a pretty deep distributed system with his background in identity and in, in systems. Um, yeah, so, like the perfect, perfect fit. And so how did you end up funding the business? So I, um, I basically, I, I took a year off after stepping down from Puppet. Um, there were some, you know, personal things, uh, you know, family things that we had to deal with. And I couldn't stay away from prototyping things. So I started building uh, a prototype for something. And I started getting, uh, you know, friends and later on, you know, angel investors kind of just ask him what, what was up with that, you know, like whether they thought it was a good idea or not. And in fact, you know, people wanted to give me money. And at the time I started realizing that it was really about me and not about the idea. And when I started vetting the idea with people who would give me real feedback, they said, well, you know, not the best idea. Uh, and so said, said, great, that's interesting. I know I don't want to pursue this idea. I want to keep iterating. And one of the uh, VC firms that I was pretty close with, uh, Costa Nova Ventures, said, hey, why don't you become an EIR? Um, and I didn't, back to freedom, I didn't really want any strings, but they said, no strings. You know, we'll pay you a little bit of money. You'll give us some advice on our investments. You'll see how it is on the other side of the table. And that was just too good of an offer to, to pass up because it involved learning, you know, how investors really think. And also, you know, being able to, to have most of my time be focused on ideating. And that team was really great to, to work with. And as we got to authorization and as Gert and I started really uh, investigating that uh, in depth, it was very clear that Costa Nora wanted to write us our first check. That's and so we great. went off and, you know, um, basically recruited a bunch of angels uh, that we knew and got connected with and built a great coalition. So you know, we started the company and uh, in, I think we incorporated in uh, mid-October of uh, 2020 and all the money, you know, hit the bank account. Like, I think it was the first week of November. So we had yeah. funding, seed stage funding from, from the get-go. And, yeah. you know, it just, people ask me, how'd you do it? And I said, well, in three weeks, but also in 30 years because totally you know, you've got those like depth of those relationships and you've been good to people and people you've got a good reputation and yeah all of that counts and so interesting that you did that during the pandemic yeah and it was interestingly it made it almost easier right because um some of the ceremony associated with building relationships and flying to the bay area and in having in-person meetings and partner meetings and all that stuff you know none of the ceremony had to yeah, like you could cut as through it. More. Yeah. yeah so you could just pick up the phone or have a zoom call and talk to people in half an hour they'd be yeah be like, i'm feeling this i'm not feeling this keep yeah. in touch keep me warm yeah so what was the business model when you first started as far as how you made money and how has that changed or is it the same so we're only 15 months old so you know maybe a little bit uh on the younger side of uh um, you know, companies whose founders you have on the show. But uh, we basically knew that every developer business has to have a great bottom-up, um, you know, kind of motion and, you know, a way to build awareness with the target, which is developers. Developers are have to love you and have to be your champion in order for you to actually earn the right to, you know, sell into the business. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's becoming true for a lot of other things too. You know, we talk about, we hear about product-led growth and that really is, speaks to user empowerment. You know, if you do a great job for the user and they love you and you start building 
um, you know, organizational support for, you know, this, uh, this product, this, this, this solution that's solving a hard problem for you, then, you know, it makes it much, much easier to have the entire organization adopt. And I think the same is true for developer technology. You have to have developers that really love you. And so a lot of that, a lot of what we think about every day is how to reach developers, how to increase awareness. And it's, uh, uh, the challenge is both a blessing and a curse that there's no category, right? So, right. There's no, you know, kind of nothing that we could say, we're one of those. Yeah, um, and there's not a playbook that you just turn to and say, yeah, exactly. this is how it's done. So the good news is that no one's run away with the, the market. You know, there's there's no competitor that is at scale that we have to somehow, uh, you know, unseat. But the bad news is that all of us are trying to kind of go build this category of uh, authorization APIs, if, if you want to call it that. And yeah. Um, you know, it still remains to be seen what it's even going to be called. And I would say the other thing that um, we've learned and discovered is that uh, in the end, when a business, when even a small company wants to go bet their um, roles and permissions, their authorization model on a developer um, API, it's not going to be one of those things that's you know going to start at $6 a user a month. It's going to be one of those things where the developers really need to love it, but then you have to go, the sale is to the VP of engineering or the, the CTO. And it's really a build versus buy kind of conversation. Hey, you know, you have, it's going to take you, you know, five, 10 X, uh, you know, the, the, the cost to go build it yourself. The and, time, and time, yeah. And time, time to market is going to be much lower. And quite frankly, we think about security and the security of the solution every day, all day. And that may not be necessarily the competence that you have on right. your team. And right. so those three things kind of come together. And the customers who have bought a sort of, they, they all kind of go back to those three touch, uh, those three, three value propositions. Interesting. And how many people do you have now? Uh, we're at 18 people. Wow. Uh, yeah. So growing pretty quickly. Yeah. We started out just me and Gert uh, 15 months ago. And uh, yeah, it's been amazing uh, how how we've been able to grow the team and get so much more done than we did. Yeah. I did I did um, review um, a few things. One, just like about the company culture, um, words like hungry, humble, empathetic, lifelong learners. And after getting to know you a little bit, I'm like, that doesn't surprise me at all. And then just reading about the company values of customer sir, customer first, Mm -hmm. aim high, teamwork, integrity, and honesty. I love this one. Be a driver, not a passenger. That one's a great one for all companies and be Mm -hmm. open-minded. Do you look at those as kind of like we live by these, like how Amazon does, or kind of like, hey, we'll just, we just needed something real quick. And now we're going to like really dive deep now that we have 18 people or how do you look at company values? Uh, We were really intentional about it uh, early on. And it may not be the first thing that you want to go tackle. You know, the first thing is uh, who is who do we want to serve, and then what problems do they have that you know we we think that we can address. But I would say it was you know in January of 2021, so maybe three months after we started the company, um, Gert and I had already had some of those conversations. But I wanted really to put it down, and some of it's just. To be able to attract the set of people that we think are going to do well at Asuro. And so the humble and hungry and empathetic and lifelong learner, um, the first three of those came from Patrick Lencioni. Um, he wrote a book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team and a few other books since. And 
I think he has a very interesting philosophy on who is the ideal team player. And that's what that it kind of all mm. goes back to the fact that software is a team sport, you know, building companies is a team sport. Everything we do is a team sport as humans, honestly, um, you know, or most things I should say, uh, yeah. even, you know, if you're like a, uh, you know, if you, if you're, you know, behind every individual, you know, whether it's a, uh, a rock star or a mountain climber or like at, at the highest level, there right. is a team behind them, even if oh, the, for sure. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're really optimizing for building a great team, who do, who do you want on there? And I think humble is important because folks that are not tend to, you know, that tends to belie some sense of insecurity and insecurity tends to be suboptimal because um, you know, you're constantly have to tr- having to trade off between um, overcoming that insecurity and doing the right thing for the company or the, the customer. Right. So uh, being humble, you know, like is the opposite of that. You know, you're basically, it's not really about, um, you know, building things for yourself or for your ego. It's really about like, you know, kind of delivering customer value and, and doing things together. Um, without being hungry, you know, humble, you know, may not be enough, right? Because, um, you can't just be satisfied with the status quo. Like to go zero to one, you have to just be driven to right. build something awesome. If you're not aiming for awesome, you're just not going to make it. And right. so, you know, that hunger is super important. And then, you know, uh, I would say P- uh, Patrick calls it smart, but what he means is, you know, EQ smart. And I translate that to empathetic. I think, if you want to build a, a strong team, you want people to, that, that care about each other and how they affect each other. Uh, and so you really want that. And then lifelong learners, I think that goes along with, with all of these. Like it goes along with uh, being humble and being hungry and, yeah. you know, and, and being able to kind of have that growth mindset of we're always curious. We know that we don't know everything, uh, but we're curious to learn. Yeah. And do you feel, I mean, it's so early days, but like at what point in this journey of the CERTA will you feel like, ah, I feel super successful? Like, what's the goal in the next three to five years? Well, um, we're aiming for the fences. So, you know, some people start companies because they're looking for some kind of exit. We feel like we have a, a really deep problem domain and we could see ourselves working on it for 10 years. And so there's just so much opportunity when you see so much pain around authorization. So you have, obviously developers have to go reinvent the wheel and, and no one wants to do that. I like to say, um, I want to work on permissions and RBAC said no developer ever. Right. right. So there's obviously kind of pain point there. But if you look at enterprises that are buying SaaS applications, they have to live in, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of different admin consoles that each have their own model. It's, oh, yeah, it's got to be so it. annoying. So inefficient. So it's, it, I mean, it's just, it's soul crushing, right? Yeah. It's soul crushing. And, you know, if you think about security, you know, personnel inside of these companies that um, don't have a way to like, look at all of the, you know, the permissions that a user has across all the different applications and auditors and compliance departments that have to go prove that, you know, the, you know, like they, they can satisfy all these regulations. Right. 
there's just all of this pain around this problem of authorization. So we want to, you know, build an independent company. And, you know, if we, if we build it right, uh, we think that there's a huge market out there. Yeah. Um, and they say like the size of the total addressable market is seems to be somewhat endless for this whole problem. So that's exciting. That's super exciting. Plus just talking about the competitive landscape, as far as I got, it's not like we've got people are trying to take down, um, really good positioning for you to be in. Are you going to be raising another round? We are. We are. So um, we raised, fortunate enough to raise plenty of money and, you know, with uh, plenty of runway. But, you know, we we're probably going to be ready for our Series A in the next few months. And super a lot exciting. of it's just... You know, we just launched our public beta, which was super exciting. And we're seeing, you know, like we're learning a lot from new users that are coming in and, you know, trying, trying things out and, you know, feverishly building the feature set and, uh, you know, like expanding the offering yeah. uh, in the direction that users are asking for. So there's nothing like, you know, kind of feeling that visceral. Uh, oh, yeah. The excitement around it. Yeah. I mean, people telling you, oh, you know, this is cool, but it would be even cooler if you did that. And you go, I heard that three times. Let's go build that. Um, Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that's for a builder, you know, it's, it's just exhilarating. And the fact that you can, it's not like, no, I don't know how, but you're, I mean, talk about confidence around it because you're, you're not just a, a sales CEO. You're like, no, I actually know what they're talking about. And you can kind of bridge that gap in your role, which is amazing. Um, So talking about like the subject matter, like authorization and the pain points, like, is this what you're talking about around the dinner table? Do your kids know what you're doing? Um, My kids could only really kind of talk to what I was doing when I was working on Xbox. They're like, yeah, that's doing some like something exciting stuff like for, you know, engineers or for developers. And we think it's pretty cool. Uh, Right. You know, I think that they they would be able to, you know, give a little bit of the elevator speech around, you know, roles and permissions and how, you know. Right. You but know, it's not the, it's not the sexiest of the sexy. No, it's not. It's plumbing. It's plumbing. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, they're like, roll their eyes, you know. Yeah. How, how do you set yourself up for a good week, given how much you're trying to accomplish right now? And given, you know, multiple kids and your wife is working. Yeah, I think, um, you know, every week I kind of start thinking about what's most important, right? So there's just so much stuff you could do. And, you know, oftentimes I try to find where the white space is, where the holes are, and just kind of like go drill into those and figure out whether there's uh, something I could do um, or whether there's a set of people I can activate around it. And even going from, you know, two people to 18 people, there's a transition that I'm trying to orchestrate now. Um, I found myself really uh, enjoying being an IC again and, um, you know, kind of helping the building process. And I'm now trying to transition um, so that I'm not the owner of everything, right? It's That's smart. When, when you have a, the owner gene in you, um, you tend to, it, it's tempting to do that. Yes. But the only way to scale is really to empower other people to step up and to be owners. And yeah. so those those patterns are great to learn in a larger setting. And so I credit, you know, the Microsoft upbringing and, you know, yeah. and other big companies teaching me those lessons. But knowing when the transition happens is often really tricky. Totally. And I was thinking that as you were saying that, I'm like, you know, there are the uh, entrepreneurs, first time CEOs in their 20s who are like, in order to get it done right, I have to do it all myself. And I'm like, well, that's impossible to scale 
Um, yeah, you've got you've got a really good thing going. I'm so glad to learn more about it and more about you personally. It's um, going to be really fun to watch this journey. Um, my final question for you is what fuels you? Wow. Um, that is such a good question. I think, you know, to me, it's just the the journey and the adventure. Yeah, so I've, you know, kind of gone from valuing, you know, maybe it's knowledge or uh, achievement or all those kinds of things. Like my biggest, uh, it helped to get into martial arts about. Um, I love that. Ago. Uh, I started doing Kung Fu during my sabbatical at my, at, from Microsoft, and I just earned my fourth degree black belt. And wow, one of, one of the I thought the, you were going to say Krav Maga, the Israeli that that would be cool, too. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm not I, I would I'm, I'm very interested in cross training and other things. But the one of the th one of the, the lasting lessons I had there was when I was testing for my black belt, I was still you know, pretty focused on, you know, kind of like the belts, you know, the achievements yeah. the levels, you know, and I recall having a really hard test. It was six hours and it was grueling. And at the very end, the, um, the person who led it basically asked, um, would you feel the same way about your performance if you had the new belt in front of you versus right. the existing belt? Like he was basically asking about the journey. And I said, um, I thought to myself, you know, kind of would I be upset or would I feel like I left anything on the table or something? And I said, no, I think I really enjoy the journey. And in fact, I feel that test. They didn't say it. They yeah. said, well, you need to recertify. And, you know, you didn't like, but we'll give you the honorary black belt. They're like, Just don't tell me that. Tell me I failed. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm good with that. I'm resilient. And that gave me, you know, kind of like I thought about it. I thought, am I really kind of just in it just to get the black belt or am I in it because I think that I'm getting a lot of value from the journey and it was the latter and I could really look at myself in the mirror and say that and I've had a lot of setbacks in you know kind of that journey of the martial arts just like in life but kind of getting that perspective that the journey is the destination I think has really been you know like the last probably five or ten years of my life have been kind of a deeper and deeper awareness of that. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Thank you.